trotting on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. We're going to be looking at a couple of very important places in the world, or a number of them. We're going to be talking about the mysteries of Jerusalem's Golden Dome Mosque today, and we're also going to be journeying with the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians living along the coastal area of what we call Palestine today. First of all, let's go to the Middle East at the crossroads, and we're looking at the mysteries of this Golden Dome building that we often see in Jerusalem on the news and so on. You know, back in the year 2000, the Prime Minister of Israel took an interesting trip up onto the top of the Temple Mount. This was Ariel Sharon. And because of that visit, tragically, he caused a whole heap of trouble there in Israel. We have what we call the Second Intifada as a result of his going onto the Temple Mount there back in 2000. Some 3,000 Palestinians lost their lives in that conflict at that time, and 1,000 Israelis were killed during this period. Tragic. I guess the question we need to understand this afternoon or answer is, why did he come here? Why did he go up on top, and why did it cause such a terrible catastrophe? Why did it upset the Muslim world, especially the Palestinian Arabs there in Israel? We're going to see the answer to those important questions. They turn out to be very important questions as we go through our first session this afternoon. Let's go back in time now, back around 4,000 years ago to the time of Abraham. Abraham even made it on Time magazine. Must be pretty famous to get there. Front cover story, Abraham, because he's important to the Islamic people because they consider Ishmael, which is the father of the Arab nations, and many, of course, Arabs are Muslims. He's sort of the father to many Muslims today in the world. He's also important to the Jewish people, of course, because through him came the Israelites. And then, of course, to the Christians as well, because many of the things, the origin of Jesus comes down through that, Jesus comes through that line from Abraham. So a very important Person. Now, Abraham lived here in Ur, in the area what we called Sumeria back in those days, in Sumer. Abraham was living here when he received his famous call that's recorded in the biblical records. We go to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings in the biblical records, and we notice what it says about this call that was given to Abraham. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, that's Ur or Sumer, the city of Ur was in Sumer, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You notice this interesting call to Abraham, three things are involved. And these three things help us to understand the Middle East strategically. In fact, this afternoon in both programs, you're going to understand so much about the ancient uh, period of the biblical writings and the significance of this place, Israel. So notice, first of all, he was to go to a special place, it says, a land would be given to him. Now, of course, this land we know today as Israel. 
the land of Israel. Now, why this land? How come this piece of real estate? Why not Australia or some other country, so to speak? Well, there's a very significant reason for it. If you take a map of the ancient Mediterranean world, you will notice the great civilizations. Down south, we have Egypt. Of course, many, many people lived in Egypt one of the greatest civilizations of the ancient world. Then up the top you see Anatolia. This is Turkey. This is where the Hittites lived in ancient times. Another great area of civilization. And then over there, the west, if you like, north of the Gulf, there we have Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, of course, is regarded by many uh, historians as the cradle of civilization. So this was the area where Israel was situated. You notice it's right in the middle. Abraham leaves Ur just above the Persian Gulf here, and he leaves this place. Now, he would come up the Tigris and Euphrates River. That's the fertile section. And then he would come down through the area of Syria into Israel to This particular place. You will notice it's on a land bridge in the ancient world. It is smack bang in the middle. And this is a very important reason for this place. This is one of the reasons why he was sent to this place because of its position in the world in those days in terms of uh, it's, it, it was so central to the ancient world. It had global reach, we would say. Now this was very important to what God wanted to do through Israel. All right. Thus says the Lord God. You will notice even the Old Testament records this as very central to the nations. This is Ezekiel. He's living in the time of Daniel, the prophet, whose prophecies we are looking at in this series. Thus says the Lord God. This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. And you can see that on the map as we've just read. Very important place. Now, number two, they were to be a special people. He said, I'll make of you, Abraham, a great nation will come from you. Of course, these people became what we call the nation of Israel. We'll see more about this in the second session this afternoon. Then he said, you have a special purpose we just read about. Their purpose as a nation, as a people in this place was to what? It was to be a blessing or a help to the rest of the world. As we saw the other day, God has no favorites. He cares for all people. He's the God of all. But he was to use Israel for a special purpose, to help the rest of the human race. Now, how would he do this? Well, two things that Israel would be given. Number one, to Israel was given the Messiah. Down through the Israelites would come the Christ, as we saw the other evening. And secondly, they were given the temple. And the temple was to show how the Messiah would help the rest of the world, to save the rest of the world. That was the purpose of the temple before the time of Jesus the Christ. Now, you recall, if you've studied a little bit of the history of the biblical writings and you've heard some of the things from Hollywood, like, you know, Ten Commandments, the Prince of Egypt and so on, you'll remember that Israel was down here in Egypt for a period of about 400 years. When the 400-year period ended, Moses brought them out of Egypt around about 1450 BC. They left Egypt and they returned to what we call Israel today. On their journey, they came through the Sinai Desert. By the way, anybody been to the Sinai Desert? I tell you what, Australians would 
would understand it's very hot. If you've come from Western Australia or the middle of Australia, it's blazing hot in the day and frightfully cold at night. I came to the top of this mountain for the first time and I thought it was sort of like going to be a hotel up the top or something. That's what it looked like on the paper. All there was was a square box up on top and I froze to death all night. And it's freezing cold. I thought about Moses, uh, according to the biblical records, was up here 40 days and 40 nights, the poor man. (laughs) Frightfully cold. But a beautiful place uh, to see the scenery from up the top of Mount Sinai. Well, it was here at Mount Sinai that he was given the temple how to build the Israeli temples, and they've all been situated or been patterned after that. Solomon's temple came a little bit later on. Solomon's temple came after David, round about 950 BC. They no longer had a movable temple that was given to Moses. Now they had a permanent temple made of bricks and, and stone and so on. A, and that was the first of the of the permanent temples. There was another one built after they came out of Babylon, and Herod the Great. We talked about him the other day. He he embellished that temple. He re, rebuilt rebuilt it, and that's the temple that was here during the time of Jesus the Christ. So these temples. Now all of these temples were based on this basic pattern. There were two rooms inside the temple. In the first room, there was a candlestick, the seven-branched candlestick, a table with bread on it, and then there was an altar with incense that was burnt on it. In the second room, in the back, there was what we call the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments inside that box. All of the temples were based on that pattern. Outside in the courtyard, there was a an altar where they sacrificed animals. They burnt the animals they had sacrificed, and there was a wash basin called the laver in the courtyard. All of them were based on the same pattern that you read in the ancient biblical records. Now, these temples, down through time, right on from the time of Moses, right on to the time of Jesus the Christ, their purpose was to illustrate how God would solve the human sin problem that we talked about yesterday. Now, the, these temples were sort of like a drama, if you could put it that way. Now, if you did not live, if you lived before the time of Christ, you could not have any understanding except by this sort of a drama to appreciate how God would solve the problem. And so before he came, this was the way to teach people from the temples in Jerusalem how God would solve the human sin problem. Now, there were two critical players in these temple services of the Israelites, this drama that proceeded for centuries, day after day through the years. Number one were the sacrifices. Now, these animal sacrifices, these lambs, these lambs pointed forward to an important thing that would happen in the history of the world, and we talked about that yesterday. You will notice this brings us to the Dome of the Rock. When we come to the Dome of the Rock, it's not really a mosque, but some people call it a mosque. But people pray here, the Muslims pray here. By the way, I came up here in my first trip to Israel, but you can no longer go inside this building today. So I I have been inside it. It's it's an amazing thing to see. But today you can't get in there unless you're a Muslim today. Um, But this Dome of the Rock is important to the story of the sacrificial lambs because you, you see it was here in this place that an interesting story took place in the history of the Jewish people. You may recall the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. This dome is situated over a rock. That's why it's called the Dome of the Rock, because the dome is over a rock. 
And this rock is important to the story of Abraham. Now, you may recall in the story that Abraham one day, one night, is awoken by the voice of God and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him up as a sacrifice in a mountain that I will show you. Now, Abraham cannot believe his ears because he knows that God does not want human sacrifices in the ancient records. God forbade that, yet he knew the voice of God. God had spoken to him in Ur, told him to leave. So he knew it was the voice of God, but he could not understand what was going on. But in obedience, he woke his son and he said, son, we're going to offer a sacrifice. So Isaac, his young boy, went with his father and they journeyed, taking with them the wood and the fire. Well, as they're getting closer and closer to the end of their journey, the the son says, Dad, listen, here's the wood, here's the fire. Hey, where's the sacrifice? Abraham does not have the heart at this point to tell his son that he is to be the sacrifice. So they continue on together and finally they come to the place. And Abraham tells his son that God has told him that he is to be the sacrifice today. Now, Isaac... Uh, brought up in in this godly home, he he says, well, Dad, if that's what God says, we better get on with it if that's what he's told us to do. So Abraham ties up his son and he lays him on the altar of stones that he's built, which was common in those times, and lays him on. And then he lifts the knife to kill his son. And he's about to plunge the knife into the chest of his son. Suddenly a voice calls out, Abraham, don't do it. I was only just testing you to see whether you really trust me, whether you really do follow me, Abraham. Don't do it. I don't want that. He said, you look over in the bushes there. You'll see an animal, a ram caught in the in the thorn bushes. Get that animal and put it up, sacrifice it in the place of Isaac. Well, of course, the father was quite relieved, no question about it. So was the son, I'm sure. And this is the story. Now, scholars believe today, archaeologists and scholars believe that this is Mount Moriah. The dome of the mosque, the dome of the the Islamic building is built over that very rock. And scholars believe this is the place where Abraham came to offer up his son. This place, this rock is also the place where Solomon, when he built the Jewish temple, the first permanent structure, this is where he built the altar of sacrifices for the sacrifices right over this rock. So this is an important piece of real estate, this little bit in the city of Jerusalem. Now you can understand why Ariel Sharon wanted to come here as a Jewish man. This is sacred place to the Jewish people, but it's also sacred place to the Muslims because the Muslims believe that it was Ishmael that Abraham was to offer as a sacrifice, not Isaac. Ishmael was the stepbrother, was actually a little bit older, but not the son of Sarah, his wife. Now, this is also very important real estate for the Muslims for another reason, because this is the place the Muslims believe that Muhammad took his night journey from to heaven in the story of Muhammad. So this is a very important place. No wonder when Ariel Sharon came up here, he upset the Muslims big time because they control this area of, of, of Israel and Jerusalem. And so he really upset these people big time and caused a tremendous tragedy right there back in 2000, 
the year 2000. All right, so this important place. Now, this place Abraham called Jehovah Jireh, this spot where he offered up his son Isaac or was going to do that, which means Jehovah provides. The word Moriah, Mount Moriah, this word means seen by the Lord. That's the significance of this name Moriah. Seen by the Lord that God will provide. What's this getting at? Well, Jesus referred to this when he was here. Jesus the Christ came. He said, your father Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And some of the people mocked Jesus and they said, come on, give us a break. You're not even yet 50 years of of age and you've seen Abraham. Abraham's seen you and so on. What do you mean? What Jesus meant was that time Abraham saw what would one day take place. Abraham saw the day of Christ in the future. That's what's going on here. Abraham said, you remember, he said, my son, as they're journeying together, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Can you picture it this afternoon? A father who loves his son and a son who loves his father and loves life journeying together up a mountain, the heart of Abraham must have been breaking when he's thinking, this is what I have to do to my son. Oh, I can hardly bear it. But they go together. That day, you see, Abraham saw something that would one day take place. He saw there would be another hill one day that we talked about yesterday when another father and another son would go to the top of a hill. That was called Calvary. The father of us all, God, would take his only son and his only son would go and die for us. But there would be no voice that would call out, God, don't do it. God gave his son as a sacrifice. We read it in the book of Revelation. He was slain to take away the sin of the world. It's an amazing story. That's what Jesus meant. Abraham longed longed to see my day. He did see it and he was glad because he realized there would be a way through the human sin problem. So that's what Abraham saw so long ago. He could see it in what was he was to do. Now that's why when John the Baptist was seeing Jesus come toward him to be baptized, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He could see in him the sacrifice for the human race. Not only that, when Jesus was about to be born, Joseph was told these words, she, his wife, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? It says, for he will save his people from their sins. So you can see in quick overview of the history of Israel, they were to be a special blessing to the rest of the human race. How? Through the Messiah and the temple services, portrayed in minute in in dramatic form what he would one day do to solve our problem as a human race because we've seen the wages of sin is death and everybody has fallen short of the glory of God and done wrong I don't care who you are don't come here and tell me you're perfect because I know the reality is in our own lives we have all gone astray at some point in time Every one of us. That's the way the Bible puts it. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that's why Jesus the Christ came to do away and to take away the sins of the world. 
You know what it says here? Much more then, says Paul, having now been justified by his blood, that means his death, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The destruction is coming, but God wants to save it from us from it, and he does it through the death of his son. That word justified, by the way, is an interesting word. We, we like the word forgiven when we do something wrong and we say, I'm so sorry, don't worry, I forgive you. We like those words, don't we? Well, in the, in the sense that God forgives us, this word is even greater. This word justified comes from the law courts of the ancient world. I had a friend, which illustrates the point well. A friend of mine, he and his, he and his uh, mates grew up in a town called Northam in Western Australia, just a itty-bitty little town. But uh, these boys used to steal milk bottles. Do you remember the day, some of you, when milk bottles used to be put on your front door? Well, these young guys would go around stealing milk bottles because they could, they could uh, get some free milk. Well, their father heard about them stealing the milk of the neighbours and so on, so he thought, I want to teach my boys a lesson. I don't want these boys to end up in jail one day because they, they, they get on a life of, of stealing. So he, he was friends of the, of the judge in the town and he was friends of the police. So he said to the police, listen, I want you to go arrest my boys for stealing milk bottles. And he went to the judge and he said, I want, to bring the, I want the police to bring the, my boys right into the court here in town. So he set it up. Boys got caught red-handed by the police one day stealing milk bottles. So they hauled them off to the judge and they stood before the judge in Northern there. And the judge looked at them with his beady eyes and he said, boys, how do you plead? They said, guilty, your honor, guilty. He looked at them and he said, well, I hope you boys learned a lesson from this. He said, acquitted. Now, what does that mean? They're treated as if they never even did it in the first place, you see. Now, that's the word justified. We are counted as if we were absolutely innocent, but we're not. But we have the innocence, if we put it that way, of Jesus. It's credited to us. It's counted to us. And therefore, because we're counted as if we never did anything wrong, that's how we can be saved from destruction. That's the way the Bible puts it here. Paul, the great uh, Jewish leader, there in the Christian world way back, a friend of Jesus who first of all tried to kill the fo- or did kill the followers of Jesus. An amazing man. Now what about the priests? They were the second players in the drama that took place in the ancient Jewish temples. The priests. These priests pointed forward, no question as we're going to see in just a moment, to the fact that when Jesus rose from the dead, and don't forget we're going to see that film Risen and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, when he rose, the Bible says he went back to heaven. He has not been having a holiday. He has become what we call a high priest or an intercessor or a mediator, like an advocate, a lawyer, if you would like to use those terms. That's what he's been doing since he went back. And this is the way the book of Hebrews, where Paul is writing to his Jewish friends, he writes these words. He says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Aren't you glad for those words? It's not a throne of fear and terror. It's called a throne of grace, as we saw mentioned yesterday. That we may, he says, so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that true that to all of us at some point in time, we all need some mercy? And all of us need some mercy from God because we've all done wrong. We've all made mistakes. 
Well, Paul says here, he says, that's what Jesus is doing now. We can come boldly through him to have mercy. When we messed up big time, we can find mercy, but we can find more than mercy. He says, we can find help when we need it. When we're ready to do the wrong stuff, we can cry out for help. And I know that uh, there's no question God helps us when we have those times when we're ready to throw it in. Notice the way John put it. John was a follower of Jesus, and John had this idea of what a priest was on about here. And he talks to his friends. He's like an old man at this time. He's, 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 uh, he's about to go to Patmos. He's an old man writing to his friends. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, so that you won't do the wrong stuff. And if anyone sins, if we do make a mistake, he says, we have an advocate. Referring to Jesus, the mediator, we have an advocate like a lawyer, as so to speak, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then he adds these words, or he mentioned them just before this. If we confess our sins, if we tell God what we've done wrong, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He, he is faithful, absolutely dependable and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't those tremendous words for us today? Because I tell you what, you go, ask my wife, have I done wrong? She'll tell you, yeah, I can tell you he does some stuff that's wrong. <laughs> and you probably, well, I know you're the same too. There's things we're not proud of. But thank God that we have an advocate, he says, and he cleanses us from the stuff that we've done wrong. So what do we see here? We see that prior to Christ's coming, before he came, as we saw in that amazing prediction from the prophet Daniel on Friday evening, before he came, the temples were set up at the crossroads of the world so that if people were coming from Egypt and they're on their way, perhaps up to Turkey, to the Hittite realm, they come through Israel, they come through Jerusalem and they see this drama and they ask the questions, what's going on? What does this mean? We don't do it this way down in Egypt. What are you, what's, what's happening here? They would be told the story of a deliverer who was yet to come the Messiah. Maybe they're coming from up in Mesopotamia, down from maybe the Persian Gulf of Ur itself. They travel through Mesopotamia, come down through Syria. They land up in Israel. They find themselves in the temple and they ask the same questions. What's going on here? This was a strategic place so that God could help the rest of the world understand there was a way out of the human dilemma. And they understood something of one who would die for the human race and one who would become our advocate, our mediator with the Father. Now, this brings us back to Daniel 9 right now. You remember the other evening, we went to Daniel 9 and we saw the curse of the forbidden prophecy, this chapter, which sadly has sometimes had a curse placed on it so that people will not read this prophecy, which points clearly to the Messiah. Let's come back to this prophecy because we didn't finish it properly the other evening. Remember the one that says 70 weeks are to cut off for your people and your holy city. Now, as I said the other evening, you don't have to remember this. Just sit back and say, wow, that's the point of this prophecy. We can see some things are absolutely rock solid here. Now, remember we put up this diagram here. Seventy weeks, he says, cut off for your city, which is Jerusalem, and your people, Daniel, Israel. This is a 70-week period. We went through that the other evening, and we discovered, what is it? Seventy weeks. But we didn't ask this question. Seventy weeks for what? We didn't read the rest of the passage. We should have read it. Well, we just didn't have time the other night. Now we're going to do it now. Seventy weeks for what? 
It says here, 70 weeks are cut off for your people, your holy city, to finish transgression. That means rebellion against God, that word transgression. To make an end of sins, that means of missing the mark, falling short. To make reconciliation, that means to be friends again with God because sin separates us from God. He says to make reconciliation for iniquity or sin. He says to bring in everlasting righteousness means to justify, to count us as if we'd never done things wrong in the first place, to seal up the vision, to show it's true. The prophecy is dependable and to anoint the most holy, meaning the most holy place and so on. All right, now let's notice these four things. The purpose of this 70-week period, which we discovered the other evening, represents a 490-year period. 70 weeks, 490 days, day for a year. We talked about that the other evening. Here's the purpose. Number one, it is, first of all, to end rebellion against God. As we have said, we are all have been rebels at heart. We all run from God at first. We saw that in the Garden of Eden the other day. Number two, to have victory over sin and wrong, to have power over the stuff that sort of like becomes habitual to us. That's not the right thing way to go. To reconcile us to God, to make us the friends of God, says the prophet Daniel. This is what this period is for. And fourthly, to forgive and more than that, to count us as if we never did it in the first place, to justify us. Those are the four things we just read about. Now, how would this happen? How would this take place? How would this be possible? Notice what Daniel the prophet is told by the angel Gabriel, 530 years before Jesus the Christ. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto who? The Messiah. You notice that the the center of this prophecy is the Messiah. Now, by the way, for those of you who weren't here the other evening, you will remember that we displayed some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls have the writings of the prophet Daniel in them. It was a favorite of those people who copied those scrolls. And those scrolls go back 100 to 200 B.C. We're talking about about predictions that were clearly made before he ever arrived. 100 to 200 years. That's just the copies. The originals go back to 500. By the way, this is the oldest part copy of the biblical writings that we have. It's on some silver scrolls and it comes from the temple period time of the time of Solomon's temple called the silver scrolls. It's the oldest part we have that we can date back way back to around 600 B.C. Now, he says this prophecy will take us to the Messiah. He is going to be the solution. He's going to be the one that brings that to, to, into being, that makes that happen for people, the Messiah or the Christ. Now, when would he come? We spent a little time the other evening pointing out very clearly when this would happen. Remember, we discovered that the command was given to restore and build Jerusalem in the year what? 457 BC. We have the decree of the Medo-Persian king Artaxerxes mentioned there in the book of Ezra. And we talked about that. Now we all need to just need to add the 69 weeks because he said seven weeks and 62 weeks we saw the other day. That would bring us to the Messiah. The Christ would arrive at that time. And we discovered when we went to the, to the New Testament, Luke records for us very clearly 
that it was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar when Jesus the Christ was baptized. That's what we talked about the other evening, as you recall. Right on time, Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him. And that's when he was anointed, or that's the word for Messiah or Christ in the Greek. We saw that the other evening. 27 AD, Jesus the Christ arose right on time, and we saw very clearly as that great British uh, mathematician and scientist Sir Isaac Newton said, this prophecy is the foundation stone of the Christian religion. Jesus is God in human flesh because he's the Messiah. He fulfills that prediction right to the point. He is the Messiah and therefore God in human flesh. Now the question now, which we haven't yet answered, was how would he solve the sin problem? It's all very well to say he arrived, but how would he solve the problem for the human race? Now Daniel continues and tells us how. So let's go back to this prophecy. You will notice we've had 69 weeks, 7 plus 62, but there's a total of 70. That leaves how much? How many weeks left? One week's left. So we're looking at this one week here, which is seven days, or as we've seen, a day for a year, as Ezekiel pointed out in that principle of prophecy, we have a seven-year period from 27 to 34 AD. Let's look at this in detail. Notice what it says. After the 62 weeks, in other words, seven weeks and then 62, it said. So after the 69th week, because there were seven before that, as we just read, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. This is the week we're talking about here. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifices and to offerings. Now, what's going on here? You will recall, if you've read the story of the death of Jesus, or you've seen the film, The Passion of the Christ, you will recall in that story that when Jesus dies and says, it is finished, that the curtain in the temple between the two rooms that we talked about earlier, that curtain is torn in two, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. That curtain is torn in two. Notice what Matthew records for us. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Why? Why did this happen right at that point when Jesus the Christ died? For a very simple reason. There is no longer any need for those dramas. The real thing has arrived. The Messiah has come and he has died. You don't need a lamb anymore. You don't need an earthly priest anymore. He has died. He will rise in two or three days time and then he'll go back as the priest for the human race. So no longer do we need a temple here on earth to portray the drama because now the reality has come, you see. That's why the curtain was torn. So let's go back to Daniel again. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, meaning killed. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But, it says very clearly now, but in the middle or the midst of, of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifices and offerings. There it is very clearly. It make an end to it. But notice what it says in the middle of the week. Let's put it up here. Here's our diagram. We have a seven year period left. One week of the 490 comes after the 69 says Daniel or Daniel is told. 
The middle point between 27 and 34 AD is exactly 31 AD, and this is when Jesus the Christ was crucified. We have it recorded in the Gospels for Passovers, poor Passovers, and Jesus dies on the fourth one. 31 AD, right on time, Jesus is crucified. Why is this prophecy given? So that we can be clever? No, for this reason. You see, the 70 weeks and the 490 or the 490 years, they are precise. This is not guesswork. This prediction is made 530 years beforehand. We have it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the, the book of Daniel, and this is at least 100 to 200 years before he's still come yet, the copies. And this is telling us that Jesus is the Messiah. He came on time, 27 AD. He died on time, 31 AD. First of all, this is clearly telling us that there's a big so what. Jesus is the Messiah. And as we saw, that means God in human flesh. But more than that, it means this. All this... The ending of our rebellion against God, victory over the things that, 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 uh, that we become slaves to, the being reconciled to God as he's now our friend, we're forgiven and we're right with God. All of this is absolutely true. That's the point of this prophecy. It's nailed down. How do we know that this is true? Because the prophecy says to us it's true. He came on time. He died on time. So you can believe all that is true for you and I as we sit here today. Isn't that amazing? I think it's incredible. God wants us to have confidence that this is for you and I. We can have peace with God. We're reconciled. We can sleep like a baby at night. We're forgiven and we're right with God. We, our rebellion has ended. How can anybody really, when we think of we see how God took our place, it breaks our rebel hearts to think that the God of the universe would die like that for us. And it gives us power. I mentioned the other evening, my father, as soon as he found or Christ found him, his life was changed, gave up his drink. There is power in the death of Jesus Christ and in his life today. This in the Bible, by the way, in the New Testament is called the New Covenant. Let me put it up for you here. Paul is writing to his friends, again, his Hebrew friends. He says, this is the covenant. And you will notice Daniel uses the word covenant. I'm going to make a covenant. This is the covenant that I will make, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, meaning they will want to follow the right way. And I will write them in their hearts. They will love to follow them. He says, and I will be their God. They shall be my people, will be his friends, you see, his children. Everyone shall know me meaning have a friendship with me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. I'm glad for that. He's merciful even when we're not so good. Merciful to their righteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, he says, I will remember no more. Your wife may remember them. Your husband may remember them. Your kids may remember them, but God does not. He promises forgiveness. In other words, that's the point he is making. So all of this is absolutely true. That's what it means. The covenant is confirmed. It's for sure. It's for real for you and I today. Now, how can we have it? I want to close with an interesting little story. John Patton 
was say, well, let me put up the text first and we'll come to it. I am not ashamed, says Paul. Now, Paul, by the way, for those of you who are not familiar with Paul, Paul hated Jesus the Christ. He was one of those who killed Stephen with stones. He actually held the coats while everybody else did it. He took part in it. And then he hunted up Christians in those early years. And he was on his road to Damascus to get some more Christians to put them in prison and to kill them when suddenly he met Jesus the Christ. And uh, his life was radically changed incredibly. And he writes these words. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from beginning to end, he's saying. The just, he says, shall live by faith. Now, this word faith is very important to us or belief or trust. And I want to illustrate it this afternoon in a very simple way so that we can get it clearly. John Patton was a missionary, one of the early missionaries to the people of what we used to call the New Hebrides. This is Vanuatu, beautiful people. I've run these programs up there in Port Vila and on Santo. Lovely people indeed. But he was the missionary to these people way back. And he brought the good news to these people. And they're so glad for it today. But John Patton was trying to translate the Bible into the language of the people of Vanuatu. And he was trying to find a word to fit with belief. He couldn't find the right word that would speak to the people of Vanuatu. What does faith mean or belief? And he wrestled with this for some time as a translator. Finally, one day he was visiting a friend. And his friend was doing what you do out in the Pacific Islands, lying in the sun, enjoying life. I tell you, it's a beautiful place to live in the islands. We lived in Fiji for five years and and traveled extensively through the Pacific Islands. And a beautiful place to live and beautiful, friendly people. So he's there lying in the sun, enjoying life, soaking up the sun. Ah, Patton sees him there, out there lying down. And he says, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? He says, I'm just reclining, man, just reclining. And Patton said, I got my word, I've got my word. And when you read John Patton's translation of the most famous text in the Bible, John 3.16, it reads this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever reclines on him will not perish but have everlasting life. I like that idea. The idea of reclining on him, meaning leaning on him, not trusting to ourselves, but leaning our whole weight on him. And that's how it's translated in other places. It says, those who lean their whole weight on him, who recline their whole weight on him, will not perish. Those who don't recline their weight on him, they cannot have everlasting life, he says in the passage we read yesterday. It's an amazing translation. I guess the question that comes to you and I today is, are we reclining our weight on this great God who gave everything so we could have life? This is the way God deals with us as his children, even though we've done stuff that we're not proud of. He says, come to me and recline your weight on me. Leave your burdens with me. I love that thought. Now, we're going to go out there this afternoon. If those of you want to go to the exhibits, and I want to point out a couple of things. Maybe you've read in the biblical records, especially in the first chapters of the Bible, 
how that many of those first people lived to such old ages, you know, 969 for Methuselah. And you say, come on, give me a break. Well, let me just sit just before we jump to conclusions and say that's nonsense. Have a look at this interesting um, uh, tablet here, we could say, a prism. This comes from ancient Sumer. And it says they record how the ancient people lived for long ages, for hundreds of years. <laughs> now, it's just interesting to think that the biblical writers said that. And hello, we found that the ancient Sumerians said the same thing. Um, just interesting. Now, this one here, Sergius Paulus. When you read the book of Acts, you will read that Paul went to Cyprus on one occasion. And while he was there... He was able to bring a Roman governor to find peace in Jesus Christ. The Roman governor accepted Christ and his whole life was changed. He found peace and meaning and purpose and hope for the future. And his name was Sergius Paulus. Now, we now have about three inscriptions of a Sergius Paulus. And this one from that same island up near, I think it's Paphos, where Paul was, this mentions Sergius Paulus. So a very interesting uh, inscription here that you can see on display. Then I mentioned this one here. This is the oldest um, document that we have that by the way this comes from a passage in the book of numbers some of you may have heard the lord bless you and uh, and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you called the priestly blessing well they found this on a silver scroll it reads like you have in your bible and goes date back to the time of solomon's temple of that period finally one more you've probably heard i'm sure of the famous ten commandments hollywood made those famous didn't they with cecil b mills epic film the ten commandments well, this is the Ten Commandments, and this comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls, 100 to 200 BC, and it reads just like your Ten Commandments you may have read in the motel room or the Bible you may have at home. Just the same. So that's why we said the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important. They've been accurately tra- copied by these people and so on, and uh, we have these. And of course, the Book of Daniel, a famous or a favorite of these people. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.